The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. If you're listening to this show... It's because you're interested in the American Civil War. If you're a guest on this show, you write books for people who are interested in the Civil War, most of the time. But what if you have to write a book for people who aren't interested in the Civil War? It's your one chance to reach this audience in the book and in the classroom. We'll find out today as we talk to the author of a Civil War textbook, A House Divided, The Civil War in 19th Century America, a book written for America's undergraduates by Professor Jonathan Daniel Wells. He'll be our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. On a sunny May afternoon in 2013, enjoying the beautiful weather and quiet atmosphere of our campus, but not speaking on behalf of the university or the UNC system or anyone else but myself. And likewise, my guest will only speak, I'm sure, for his own self, uh, as we do on this show each week. It is... Uh, Getting near the end of the season, we've got a couple more live shows to go. Next week, Megan Kate Nelson will join us to talk about her new book, Ruin Nation, Destruction in the American Civil War, which takes an environmental and cultural view at uh, the war, a new kind of look. There will be no live show the following week. That's uh, June 14th, as... I'll be off traveling with the Matterhorn Travel Company on their This Hallowed Ground tour uh, from June to nine, June 9 to 16 through the battlefields of Northern Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania. If you're interested in joining that tour, I'm sure they'd be glad to have you. If you have a week off from work and lots of spare cash, uh, I gather we're going to have a nice bus and good places to stay and should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, 
a, a busman's holiday, literally on the bus, uh, learning about and talking about the Civil War. Uh, but no show, therefore, on the 14th. And then on June 21st, Jake Borat, a filmmaker, will join us to talk about the Gettysburg story. I think there may still be uh, a Kickstarter uh, page about that project. He was raising funds through that uh, technique. If you're not familiar with it, ask someone younger than yourself, and they'll explain it to you. And if uh, possible, uh, Jake will be joined by his father, the legendary Gabor Borat, uh, former director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College and author of numerous important books, most recently the Gettysburg Gospel about Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. So lots of good things coming up as we move through the end of the academic year here. You can find out about them, as always, from the website, www.impedimentsofwar.org, where uh, Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date. If you're a veteran listener to the show, you may be noticing the different sound quality this week. Uh, the reason is I've got a new computer. A new laptop has been plugged into the station on my desk Uh Every four years or so, used to be three, now it's four. In practice, it's actually more like five. Uh, the taxpayers of North Carolina update the technology in the offices of the professors, uh, at least uh, if they think we need it. And I, I certainly did my last computer, I think it was a Fisher-Price uh, 2000, and definitely needed uh, to be replaced. Uh, the new one is great, but the, the technical person who put it in got it all set up, and I looked on my email, and there was today's email, but there was no saved email. Nothing of the last uh, five years, the entire life of myself and my department, all gone. He said, oh, did you have any saved email? Hmm, perhaps 10,000 documents. Fortunately, he knew where they were and transferred those over, too. I guess he thought they were unimportant. I wouldn't need them. Got everything up to date, I thought, until this afternoon when I set up to talk with you at World Talk Radio and went to click on the handy Skype button. And it turned out they had not transferred over uh, the programs that I downloaded over the last five years, like Skype. And when I went to download it, no permission granted. The lowly professor is not allowed to add software to his computer. So uh, there was no time to finish the filing of the the uh, repair ticket, the consultation with the software guru, and the eventual installation of Skype, but I'll spend all next week doing that so we can have a good show the week after. In the meantime, uh, uh, I'm talking to you today the old-fashioned way, by phone. Uh, I hope the sound quality works for you as it, uh, as it does in the past. I know our engineers, uh, I know that Chad at uh, World Talk Radio will make it flawless and, and invisible that we have a different system this week. But enough about technology. Let's uh, No, not enough about technology. Let's also remind you to send me money, as always, $25 or more for a copy of All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And the warm feeling of knowing that you've helped me buy more books to talk about on the show. There are a lot of interesting new books uh, coming along that we'll be talking about this fall when we pick things up again. Uh, Alan Gelzo has a, a, a new, very uh, impressive new book about Gettysburg, which uh, 
uh, everyone listening to the show will have to read at some point. Uh, I will have to also. And uh, if I can't lure one out of the publisher, I'll have to dip into the Civil War book fund uh, and spend it uh, on that book. So please feel free to contribute to that uh, a heartrending cause, I know. Normally, publishers do send, some publishers do send books to me uh, in the hope that the authors will get a chance to talk about them on the show, and I'm not above that kind of bribery by any means, uh, but the, sh- the books have to be worthwhile. The, frequently, I'll get people emailing in, well, not that frequently, it happens on a weekly basis, uh, often from small or independent presses, and someone has written a new children's novel about uh, the, the war era. And while we have had children's authors on the show uh, in the past, there, there's it's not really the focus of what we're doing here, and uh, I generally have to turn them away. But sometimes we get those books coming in, and I try to give them to worthwhile uh, causes, to places where they can be put to use. So that's one stream of books that comes in the office. Another stream that comes in and our guests and anyone else who teaches will be familiar with this, are sample textbooks. Uh, The textbook companies of America have uh, a truly astonishing racket underway, producing very uh, uh, colorful and elaborate uh, color-illustrated history textbooks for professors to use, and they send us samples of them, whether we ask for them or not, so that uh, one could build a substantial breastwork out of the piles of sample textbooks that, that, that arrive if you don't find a way to get rid of them in some fashion. Today's book fell between those two. When it came in, I remember at first wondering, did this come from the textbook publicity wing, or is this a Civil War talk radio book? Uh, and it turns out to be, in a sense, both. Uh, its title is A House Divided, The Civil War in 19th Century America, uh, published by uh, Rutledge, who, who do uh, textbooks, uh, among other things. And uh, its author is Jonathan Daniel Wells, who is our guest today. Uh, Professor Wells, are you there? I am indeed. Thank you for inviting me, Jerry. Well, thank, thanks for being on the show. Um, I, I'm, as I look at, at the book and uh, read it this week, it, I don't think you and I have... have uh, met. I'm trying to recall if we've ever been at the same conference that I can think of, but uh, I don't believe uh, so. But uh, in any case, uh, uh, certainly we. I hope we can be on a first name basis. Do you go by John, Jonathan? Uh, what John? John will work fine. Thank you. Excellent. Well, it was uh, as I said when this book arrived. My first thought was uh, it, it probably came in the same kind of packaging as the textbooks come in, and I'm guessing you get the same. Uh, influx of books into your office, don't you? Yes, indeed. Uh, we have a mail room on the ninth floor of our uh, building, and it rapidly fills up at the end of each week with um, textbooks and other books that uh, have been sent to our faculty by publishers. And, you know, we don't ask for them. They just they just keep coming. And uh, I tend to... Uh, sometimes I'll put them down in the, the history lab where the graduate students hang out, and they can take them... Uh, some people sell them to booksellers uh, who who prowl the halls in with with big sacks and buy them to to resell to students. Do you have that phenomenon? Uh, we do here at Temple University, and and also I used to uh, 
seats at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and uh, we had several book buyers uh, parading through the halls at certain times of the semester. And some faculty flatly refused to, to engage in the practice. Others others do engage in it um, as a way to, you know, lighten the load in their offices. But, uh, yes, they, uh, they certainly are, are flowing into, into faculty uh, almost on a daily basis. I'm curious about what, what is your take on that? Because we technically, at one point, the faculty here passed a resolution not to sell to booksellers, and the, the school's bookstore wants books, used books. Uh, but there are arguments both ways that this helps the students by reducing costs, uh, or that the faculty are taking unfair advantage. What, how do you see it? Well, I don't. Uh sell books. Uh, I, I do the same thing that uh, you do, which is uh, put them in the grad lounge uh, for our graduate students. Or, you know, sometimes I'll keep them on hand uh, in case I need to reference a particular event or person or specific item uh, when I'm teaching. You never, you never know necessarily what you'll be teaching in the future, so I, I tend to keep some around at least. Um, but I think it's, it, it's better to uh, give them to graduate students so that they can prepare uh, themselves for teaching if they have that responsibility for, uh, you know, for their own preparation for exams, things like that. It, it, I guess it's unseemly for, for us to, to sell these books that are given to us, uh, I, I guess is the, how I feel about it, because it, it doesn't somehow seem right. But uh, on, on a bigger question, these books are very expensive. I, I don't know how much this uh, a house divided costs. I did not go online to look. But one thing I've noticed is that when you look for textbook prices online, it's very hard to find them. Do you know how much your book costs? Yes, it's uh, $45, which um, it probably sounds a lot to uh, your readers. But as textbooks go, it's uh, very affordable. And uh, students get a uh, website companion access along with it so that they can get some help online and things like that. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, if you were to walk into a bookstore, $45 is a substantial amount for, you know, your average uh, monograph or your average uh, novel. Uh, but uh, in the textbook world, it's actually uh, quite inexpensive. It, it is. That's very reasonable. For Relative, relatively speaking, of course. Right, and that's the curious division of worlds there. That, that uh, uh, one of the, the good things about teaching a Civil War class is you can cross that barrier and assign a book produced by the trade press, like Battle Cry of Freedom, where the paperback is you know fifteen dollars uh, if you want to, but if you if if it's published by a a, a uh, press that does textbooks, it's going to be forty five on up. Yours is. As you said, it's reasonably priced as these things go, and it's not uh, filled with with color. It's more black and white production, which strikes me as very reasonable. Again, because if students want color, they can look on the internet. Yeah, not only, of course, if, if they're interested in uh, uh, how a person or how a place uh, looked, they can easily do a Google search these days. But but also, most textbooks have companion websites now where a lot of the information, um, including pictures and maps, uh, that are pretty expensive to uh, reproduce in book form uh, are, are easier and, and more accessible, easier to, 
to uh, post and, and more accessible online, and, and this textbook's the same way. The uh, I, I'm let me frame these questions or, or this discussion with the the statement that I'm thinking about uh, a fall course on uh, the, the first half of the U.S. history survey, American history up to uh, 1877 is how we we divide it here. Uh, and I, I've been thinking about using your text as a, a text in that, even though it's only one century of the four that we'd cover, uh, along with some other materials. So I'm, I'm an interested observer here as we talk, uh, because this might be might be the right thing. But in general, I've I've, I've found textbooks when teaching a Civil War course to be really a challenge, really hard to find a satisfactory one. Uh, and and normally when I teach uh, the Civil War, I, I will use maybe McPherson's book or some other, what I'd call a, a, a trade book, a book for, for today's, the audience we're talking to today, the Civil War talk radio listeners, not a textbook. Um, what What are the pros of using a textbook when teaching a Civil War course? Well, of course, you know, one of the problems with, uh, one of the challenges, I'll say, with teaching the Civil War history course is that uh, students uh, enter a course with just uh, a wide range of experiences, not only with the Civil War itself, but with how to, how to do history, um, how historians work. And uh, one, I, I tried very hard in this particular uh, textbook to let students in on some of the latest scholarship that scholars are, in, are involved in. And uh, within each chapter, there's uh, there are a number of references to recent uh, scholarly work on a particular topic. So it, it tries to get uh, students uh, at least a little bit familiar with some of the historiographical trends that are going on in the profession. But uh, at the same time, it provides students with a basic knowledge, not just of uh, the military and political history, although that's in there too, but also the cultural literary uh, history of the Civil War period. So it, it tries, uh, of course, it'll be up to the readers to decide to what extent it, it, it succeeds, but it tries to uh, fulfill the needs of, of a varied audience. The times that I've taught the course, both in North Carolina and uh, up here in, in Philadelphia, the course uh, attracts students who are really interested in the Civil War, know a great deal about certain battles, or have an affinity for um, a particular uh, general or uh, familiarity with, with mm -hmm. some details about about the war, about the battles, or about the people involved. And then you get uh, students in the class who are taking it because they don't really know much about the Civil War, but perhaps they want to know more. So it really is a challenge in, in an undergraduate course on Civil War history to try to address the varied needs and expectations uh, of the students who take it. I'll say uh, also that oftentimes uh, textbooks uh, or even a great book like Battle Cry of Freedom by uh, a wonderful, uh, remarkable, respected historian, James McPherson, the book is uh, a great um, a great read, but it's also uh, very long, and, and um, it's a challenge for many students, uh, particularly inexperienced undergraduates, to to make it through that book. So, 
I think um, this uh, textbook really tries to address uh, some of the military strategies, the, the structure of um, the armies and the navies, um, the, the military tactics and the battles that are involved, of course, in, in recounting the war, but also tries to bring in literature, uh, bring in African-American history, bring in um, history of women, Native American history. So uh, it really it tries to do a lot um, in a relatively uh, few few chapters. Which, as you say, is definitely a challenge. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I want to. We'll talk more about uh, uh, teaching, and in particular, I want to pick up on your uh, reference to teaching both at uh, Temple University and at uh, the University of North Carolina at uh, Charlotte. Uh, so we'll come back and talk about that and other things with our guest today. John Wells of Temple University is our guest. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market step up to the microphone view the finalists right now on voiceamericakids.tv america's next great star is waiting to be discovered Step Up to the Microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. Now you can take your favorite World Talk Radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The World Talk Radio interactive radio player powered by Aircast gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite World Talk Radio hosts and discover new ones. Download the World Talk Radio mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jonathan Daniel Wells, author of A House Divided, The Civil War in 19th Century America, a textbook uh, for university-level students talking about uh, the war in its 19th century context. Uh, we talked in our first segment a little bit about the uh, the phenomenon of textbook publishing and pricing and uh, the particular challenge of reaching an audience of people who are taking a course uh, possibly because they're as interested as you and I are in, in uh, the Civil War era, but also possibly because they don't know anything and want to learn about it, or because the course is offered at 11 and that means they can sleep till a reasonable hour, uh, or they have a social science or history uh, or humanities requirement uh, to fill, and this course will, will do it. it, it is uh, history a humanities or social science at uh, Temple, uh, out of curiosity? 
Uh, we tend to look at it as, as a humanity. Yeah. We're, we're, we're classified for, for the students' uh, general education purposes as a social science here, which has good and bad points. But uh, uh, colleagues in other disciplines are always fascinated when, when I point out we don't know which category we fall in. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I think it's uh, it's common in the, in the country to fall one way or the other, but uh, it, there doesn't seem to be any pattern or any perhaps um, logic to it. Uh, some some universities categorize history of the humanities and others as a social science. It definitely varies, so we we get by with what we have. Um, now, so, you, so you've taught in in North Carolina and now teach in Pennsylvania. Do you see a difference in the the students? Not obviously, there'd be a sort of a quality difference, a, a regional difference. Well, uh, to a small extent, I, well, I'm a native North Carolinian myself, and um, I taught the course uh, both at the community college level in Charlotte, North Carolina, at Central Piedmont Community College which is the, uh, at least at one time, was the largest community college in the state, hmm. uh, and also at, uh, at UNC Charlotte. And every once in a while, you do get um, a student who's very invested in uh, the notion that the Civil War was not caused by slavery, but was instead uh, primarily driven by states' rights, uh, claims on the part of, of, uh, of Southerners. And, of course, this is a long-standing debate that uh, your readers will be uh, very familiar with, no doubt. Um, but among academic historians uh, that I'm in, in um, dialogue with, it's really a settled question now mm -hmm. that slavery was the cause uh, of the Civil War. And that's the way I present it to students, um, not that it's they have to, you know, it's not a requirement uh, to adopt that particular vantage point, or if they hold another one, they're, not, they're certainly not punished in any way. Um, but again, among academic historians, uh, the issue of causation centers around the existence of slavery coming out of the Constitution, the Constitutional Convention in 1787. So every once in a while, uh, having taught the course uh, in North Carolina, I, I would get a student uh, who would be loath to embrace the notion that slavery was the primary cause of, of the Civil War. Um, and, of course, um, as you and your readers know very well, uh, the arguments against slavery being the prime driver uh, leading the nation to the Civil War often pivots on this issue of um, individual states' rights and whether or not uh, white Southerners were fighting for slavery or uh, against the tariff or against federal tyranny, uh, and, and it, it's a, certainly a well-worn debate. But um, one of the things that they often point out uh, is that uh, African Americans in the South fought for the Civil War, fought for the Confederacy, uh, which, of course, you know, in very tiny numbers, uh, they did so. The vast majority of African Americans who fought during the Civil War fought on the side of the Union. So, um, you know, I think the best way to approach these kinds of debates, uh, whether it's here up in Philadelphia or in, in the South, is to uh, provide students with, with the best evidence, because oftentimes they've heard uh, slogans or they've adopted the cliches of their parents and their peers. And, you know, when presented with historical evidence, uh, they 
understand why academic historians have really come to the general conclusion that slavery was the cause of the war. And I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of the, the occasional student who, when you're uh, talking to them, will, will suddenly put his pen down and cross his arms on his chest, and it's usually a male, but not always. Uh, and just, just the look comes over their face that this is not what, uh, not how daddy taught me, and uh, they are not going to listen to you anymore. But it's it's great when you can engage a student like that and, as you say, present evidence. I, I, I'm fascinated to hear what you said about this, because as I was reading uh, A House Divided, there were you, you certainly acknowledge that the states' rights argument was made uh, and, and ultimately point out, uh, as you just said here, that the, the economic consensus is firmly on the side of slavery. Uh, was the, the the driving cause, whatever other things might lie behind it. But I I, I thought the book gave a a fairly heavy credence to the states' rights argument, more so than than I would have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting to hear. And I'm just wondering to what extent that could be, uh, you know, the product of your classroom experience, that knowing that that's an argument you had to anticipate, so you. You discuss it more than uh, than another professor might. Mm-hmm. That might be because my um, my major research interest is Southern history, uh, uh, particularly nineteenth century Southern history, and, and even more specifically antebellum um, Southern history. So uh, I was pretty familiar with the intellectual culture uh, of the Old South and knew uh, the details of the intellectual arguments behind states' rights, the teachings of John C. Calhoun and, and others. Um, so I think uh, probably that, that was reflected uh, in, the, in the early chapters of the textbook. But one of the things that I, I really tried to do with this particular book was to begin with slavery itself. And right at the uh, sort of the, the beginning of Chapter 1, I say, you know, why, why would we start a book on the history of the Civil War era, uh, with Jamestown in 1619, with the uh, appearance of the first Af- uh, African American. So, I tried to present uh, a picture of the existence of slavery from the founding uh, of the earliest colony, European colonies, as uh, integral to the ultimate cause uh, of the war itself. But uh, you know, again, people have their own own perspectives and, and biases that they bring to to any book. Um, and they'll make their own judgments. But to me, in order to really understand a very difficult, very nuanced and complex concept like the causation, um, the causes of the Civil War, one really had to, to understand the origins of slavery and how it evolved in the South and took root, uh, particularly with the growth of uh, cotton crop, and how uh, Southerners became, white Southerners became absolutely determined uh, to protect it at, at all costs. Go ahead. Well, that's it's not only a Civil War textbook, but it's a it's a textbook that I think could also be used very easily in courses like you mentioned the, the survey course in American history uh, or a course, for example, in 19th century America, because it does kind of take a, a broad, overarching view of some of the issues that are really vexing the country, obviously, well into the 20th century. But particularly uh, during the mid-19th century, questions of race and 
and class and um, slavery versus states' rights and federal authority versus state authority. So even as it does present, I think, uh, a fairly comprehensive picture of the war and uh, both the battlefront and the home front, it also tries to, to present the story of America leading up to the Civil War and in the period uh, immediately uh, after the war itself. And that is that struck me in, in looking at it, and that was gave me the idea as I was reading it for for uh, in preparation for our conversation today. Uh, that I, I thought this is the ticket for for history uh, 1050 for the the survey course that I'm, I'll be teaching again. Uh, I, I've I've used a different textbook every time I've taught it. I'm never happy with them, uh, and. I guess when you try to compress too many centuries into too few pages, the result becomes really a bland mush of, of facts, and the students are understandably turned away. Uh, whereas something that you in, in a book like this, you have a trajectory. There's a there's an arc to the the story. The student knows it's going to may start with Jamestown, but it's going to go to the Civil War, and it's going to go beyond the war. But but there's a central plot uh, trajectory. Uh, a theme to it, and so it struck me that those chapters, especially the slavery ones at the beginning, would work really well in a survey course. Uh, might have to skip some of the later ones just because of the, the amount of pages one can assign per week. But right. Uh, but the the other thing you do here is by situating the Civil War in the 19th century. This is. Uh, it seems to me an emerging trend. Uh, 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 Vernon Burton's work is probably the most notable on the age of Lincoln, where instead of writing about the Civil War, it's about the 19th century, and the war is part of it. But you know, a lot of us, uh, again, people listening to the show, are sometimes our historical world starts at Fort Sumter and ends at Appomattox, and and you fail to see the. The, the greater connections, and not not just and not even just the 1850s or 1870s, but putting it in the whole century. Uh, do you see that possibly being a way the whole field is going to go over the next decade? I would agree with what you just said. That uh, this seems to be a, a trend among historians to try to understand uh, the mid 19th century, both uh, the pre-Civil War period, the Civil War era, and the, and the post-war period. Now, you know, it's easier said than done. In fact, uh, I didn't even do it myself in my first monograph, which was um, called The Origins of the Southern Middle Class, and was about sort of the uh, the formation of a middle class of professional and commercial uh, Southerners, doctors and lawyers and uh, dentists and teachers and, and people like that, and what, what impact uh, the formation of that middle class had on the South and the coming of the war. But um, I was... I stopped at 1861 uh, just because I couldn't imagine uh, going any further. And I, in retrospect, I, I think it would have been it would have been worth the time and effort to go beyond 1861 and and even uh, in, into the uh, Reconstruction era because that's when you get the fuller picture of some of those themes rather than sort of cutting cutting them off abruptly. And it's obvious uh, that the Civil War does solve some questions that had been vexing the country from its from its very beginnings. Slavery is not going to be permitted anymore. Uh, the question of states' rights is 
more or less settled, uh, although some folks... No, uh, the governor would, of Texas has an idea. Yeah, yeah, Rick Perry might might uh, might deny that the question was settled in, in 1865, but by and large, the question was settled. Um, but at the same time, the war does not um, end some of the other cru- crucial questions that were troubling the nation from its founding, issues of, like I said, about class and issues of race and issues of gender and Particularly, you know, the oppression of uh, people who uh, who work. Um, there's a, a fairly clear arc uh, that one could draw from African American slavery in the pre-Civil War era to not only sharecroppers and tenant farmers uh, in the post-war period, but uh, even uh, prison labor, peonage. Um, both for African Americans and for white Americans, uh, that, that really result in some horrendous conditions, uh, that uh, are laid bare, particularly in, in the decade of the 1930s. And if you just look at, uh, if you just stop at 1865, or if you just look at uh, the period between 1861 and 1865, you lose sight uh, of some of these overarching issues, not only those that are solved uh, as, as basic fundamental questions uh, in 1865, but ones that continue uh, and are not solved by the, by the war itself. I guess I'd, and I would throw, to me, what seems fascinating about the the, the setting of the war in the context of the century is the economic change, uh, the world that Abraham Lincoln grew up in of, of the self-made man, of the, uh, uh, the person idealized in, in Whig and Republican ideology who uh, you know, works for someone else, then gets his own farm, then hires others to work for him and moves up the ladder, as much as Lincoln did, uh, is, is rendered obsolete by the late 19th century when it's just not realistic for a steel worker in Carnegie's steel mill to imagine one day he'll own the steel mill and hire other people. It's not going to happen. Uh, the the American dream doesn't die, but it, it changes radically. And, and the Civil War, it seems to me, that, to be the point where that happens, but nobody knows it when it's happening. Yeah, we, we of course, um, and part of what we try to do, I, I think, in our undergraduate courses in particular, is to kind of disabuse students uh, of some of the sloganeering and, and some of the uh, ideology, what uh, some people have called the civil religion, uh, that, that students are um, absorb, what, that students absorb uh, over, over the course of their uh, life and schooling by the time they get to college. And uh, one of those is this notion that um, everybody has uh, an equal opportunity. Uh, as much as we'd like to believe uh, that every child starts life uh, with the same opportunities, um, it's demonstra- demonstrably not true. And uh, to get students to see that uh, it makes a difference if you're born to a wealthy family, say, in, um, in Boston, and you're white, uh, and your parents are educated and wealthy uh, in the 1800s, that, that's a far different beginning point than it is for uh, a newly freed African-American uh, in 1865. And uh, to, to uh, an extent, of course, you know, we don't, as historians, we try to shy away from being presentists, uh, meaning that we don't always draw the direct links between what was uh, apparent and true in the 19th century and, and what appears to be uh, true today. But hopefully students uh, will be, 
with a little help, with a little nudge, will be able to draw those conclusions for themselves. Because it's just as true today as it was in 1850 or 1870 that um, people, in my opinion, uh, and this is the way I present it to my students, I always tell them that this is my perspective, that this is my opinion, and um, I'm always open to refutations or debates or other ideas, um, but that, in my view, we still adhere to this notion of social mobility, that with just uh, some hard work and uh, diligence, anybody can be Bill Gates, when, in fact, um, most uh, people will uh, be born in, live in, and, and die in the same social class as their parents. Yeah, it's part of a liberal uh, education, uh, again, in my, from my perspective. Well, I think that's getting students to, to rethink or think for the first time for themselves about things they've been taught is, is absolutely at the heart of teaching the art of critical thinking and, and the heart of a liberal education. Uh, but it's fraught with difficulty, especially in, in the, the current uh, political climate, certainly here in North Carolina and, and I would say elsewhere, uh, where legislatures may feel that uh, – that this is either a threat to an ideology or an inculcation of a different ideology. Uh, I find it very challenging and interesting to try to get students to see that uh, what you may have been taught about you know, the American dream that everyone has an equal chance is not true without at the same time denying the value of the American dream as an ideal uh, mm-hmm. the, the, that people can it's possible to believe in something and work toward it, even if it's not a current reality, uh, and deny and, and recognizing that it's not a current reality is not the same thing as, as denying the uh, the validity of the uh, the aspiration. Uh, but often, uh, but it's a danger we face, as, as certainly as instructors, uh, that if you if you do shatter a cherished illusion. Uh, you can be accused of shattering everything behind that illusion as well, even if mm-hmm. that's not the intent. Well, let's take another short break. I want to ask you uh, a question or two about the uh, the art of chairing a history department. Uh, are, are you currently serving as chair? Do you rotate that? Uh, uh, we have uh, we have elections, and yes, I'm I'm uh, in the middle of a three year term uh, as chair of the history uh, department at Temple University. Well, we'll come back and, and, and mutually complain about that task. In just a uh, I'm talking. I don't think there's with, enough time uh, <laughs> remaining in the program to do that. Uh, I hear you there. Uh, we'll come back and talk in just a minute, chair to chair, uh, with Jonathan Wells. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jonathan Daniel Wells, author of A House Divided, The Civil War in 19th Century America, uh, published by Rutledge, a textbook for undergraduates. We've been talking about the challenges and uh, uh, intrigues of teaching undergraduates about the American Civil War. And uh, we we're just discussing at the end of the last segment the the whole premise of of college-age teaching is to get students to think for themselves, not to fill their heads with more facts. They've been getting that for 18 years. Uh but to, to teach them to, to be thinkers and, and independent thinkers and learners. And that sometimes means uh, uh, breaking away from old uh, ways of thinking. And, uh, John, it occurs to me when people are interested in history uh, generally, again, people listening to the show, for example, one lure of the past is the the comfort of going back to a time when everything was simple, when moral dilemmas were clear, when uh, there were good guys and bad guys, and uh, you know, a contrast to the the messy, contentious, difficult world we live in today. And it can be uh, there. There are people who who don't who don't want to become critical thinkers about the past because that spoils the illusion of, uh, of the past as a comfortable place to visit. Uh, do you encounter that with, uh, with students, with readers of your other work, uh, when you talk to audiences? Yeah, I, yes, I do. Uh, it's a short answer. Um, there are, I mean, some of the most popular works of history in the last 10 or 15 years have been um, of that, of that type. Uh, I think, uh, for example, David McCullough's biography of John Adams, which, um, you know, he, he's a great storyteller, uh, and I love the um, Civil War uh, Ken Burns series where he appears, um, but there's not, as far as I remember, a, a critical comment on Adams in, in the entire book, um, as if somehow being honest and truthful about one of our founders would somehow uh, make him less interesting. And, of course, in my mind, it makes him more interesting to find that people uh, who we often revere in our civil in our civil religion, people like Jefferson and Washington and Adams, you know, these are complicated, real human beings uh, that hold uh, contra- contradictory uh, viewpoints. And um, are you there? Oh, yes, yes, sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. The phone seemed to be beeping. So in, in my mind, uh, it makes it more interesting when, when you present um, the nuances and the complexities rather than sort of uh, join in the, uh, in the civil, promoting of the civil religion or, um, or promoting the sloganeering. But, uh, you know, I also understand how it's 
oftentimes history, uh, academic history, is is not written with a popular audience in mind. In fact, it rarely is. And uh, some of the the jargon that's used occasionally, uh, some of the some of the topics uh, may not be uh, immediately interesting to um, to the general reading public. And you know, we all have our interests outside our own our own fields of, of expertise. Uh, but if, if somebody really wants to get into a person's life or a particular battle or a piece of legislation, uh, I think uh, knowing the full picture of that individual uh, is much more fun and much more interesting, uh, in, in at least in my opinion. Well, I think you'd, I appreciated uh, how you discussed Abraham Lincoln in this book because he's certainly a figure who, who is revered and, and is the subject of enough hagiography that uh, uh, you do have students coming in with with a view that you know he did nothing wrong. You get occasionally students who, who don't like him, uh, but I thought you're given again the the extreme limit you have on. on and word count, given that you're telling a, a whole century in 300 pages, uh, that you do express uh, how Lincoln uh, approached emancipation and what constraints he was under, and how he was neither the the, the great emancipator doing it from the goodness of his heart, uh, but not really what Lerone Bennett would paint as the uh, you know, forced into glory uh, anti-black person who, who does it against his will. Uh, you, you try to portray the different pressures and the realities of the decision that he made. Uh, it, it, Lincoln being my particular subject, I paid attention to that, and I thought it was as well handled as you can do in a short space. Uh, well, that's so very that, kind of you to say, and that's good to hear uh, from somebody who's a true Lincoln scholar, so I, I appreciate your kind words. And it, it's, a, it's a tough thing to do. Um, the uh, One other thing you mentioned earlier about a textbook is that it has a companion website, and most uh, textbooks do nowadays. And I was curious to get your thoughts on the, the future of teaching the Civil War online. Uh, there's pressure here at East Carolina to offer more courses online. There are administrators who, I think, mistakenly imagine it would be cheaper to deliver education online than in person, uh, which I don't think is the case. But uh, do you teach online? Do you... Are, is your I do. Pressure I, I have taught online. I have taught online before. Yeah. What, what's your take on it? Well, it it takes a lot of work to do it right. Um, if you just have students follow uh, a textbook online and um, take multiple choice tests online and, and don't have them uh, answer in essay form or, or ask them to express themselves. Uh, then it's probably not a very useful enterprise. Um, but to do it right, it's it's not necessarily cheaper, and I don't think it's easier either than particular classroom experience. And it, a, a specific type of students to succeed at an, in an online course because you don't have someone personally meeting with you two or three times a week saying, "This is what you have to do next. This is what you have to do next. Um, this is why you know this concept's important." It's, uh, it, it takes uh, more of a self-starter uh, of, a, of a student to succeed in an online course, but it also takes a lot more effort on the part of the uh, professor to set it up so that there's engagement, there's interaction, that students do uh, have opportunities not only to ask questions of the professor, but to interact inter- uh, with their 
fellow online students, and that uh, especially that they're just not presented with uh, only multiple choice tests, which is easy to do online because, of course, the computer grades it for you. So it's very little. Per- uh, yeah. It's very it's very tempting to do that from from the perspective of the of the instructor, the professor, but uh, it's not very helpful to the student who doesn't have a chance to express himself or herself in essay form, which is usually what we require of our of our undergraduate traditional classroom classes. The uh, yeah, I think it would be. Uh, I can imagine doing a survey online. I suppose I I intend to do it, and our, our department is offering more. We're under pressure to to do it, and I think it's a technology worth exploring. But you certainly hit on it that that if you're going to conduct discussions and and great essays, uh, it's going to take a lot of work from the instructor, and, and the number of students they can manage is not going to be appreciably greater than they can do face to face. Um, That's true, especially because the the email traffic. Um, you know, as as a, a department chair, we are constantly on email, and um, that increases exponentially when when you teach an online course. Um, you know, I will say that there's a virtue to it, which is that students who are often busy with uh, work lives and family lives. Uh, you know, they they can, for example, go online and, and participate in a class. You know, one o'clock in the morning after after everybody's in bed, and that does appeal to a, a lot of uh, working working adults and and working students. Um, so you know, there, there's um, as there are with uh, with almost with, with almost any concept, uh, there's drawbacks and advantages. Does your department offer the Civil War course regularly? Yes, we do. Um, more, most often, my my colleague uh, Gregory Irwin, who I believe you've, you you had on the, the show, show. Yes, that's right. Yeah. He's a fine uh, a fine teacher, and, and he's been teaching that at Temple uh, for many years. And yes, we regularly offer, if not every semester, certainly every year. It's a it's a popular one here too, as you can imagine. So it, it's. Uh, it's one there that that does need to get offered regularly. I had uh, teased about us uh, telling and sharing uh, complaints about the the role of department chair, and as we approach the end of the hour, it's probably not best to even get started uh, with that because I'm sure you have uh, as many stories as I do, and the listeners didn't tune in for that. Uh, But to hear about the 19th century, which is where we are, uh, visiting today, as as we do each week on the show, uh, do you have? You mentioned you you your initial interest was in uh, antebellum Southern history. Are you working on anything? And and I'll I'll preface that by saying, as chair, I'm not writing a darn thing. I'm I'm writing ex- excuse notes to various publishers and collaborators <laughs> why I haven't produced anything. Uh, but it's it's just impossible to find the time to do serious research uh, in this job. Yeah. It's very, very difficult. Uh, again, the, the email traffic is um, a couple hundred a day uh, oftentimes. Right. So it's, it's very hard to, to find the time. And not only to find the actual time, but also to, to switch gears mentally to do the kind of careful, uh, relaxed thinking that you need to do to be able to be productive in research. But I am uh, working on a couple things. I um, finished a couple articles recently, one on... Uh, the kidnapping of African-Americans in the antebellum period, um, the ways in which 
southern uh, slave catchers would venture across the border into places like Philadelphia uh, to kidnap African-Americans who were free and, and take them back into slavery. Also uh, working on an article on uh, Charles Dickens and the way in which he was read by uh, Southerners uh, in the in the mid nineteenth century and what they made of Dickens his novels as well as his um, sort of philosophy. Um, so I'm uh, about the only thing I can manage to do is to work on some articles. Well, they they sound good. It's interesting about the the slave catchers because as as I was reading uh, House Divided, the the uh, what's the right word uh, the, the scale on which things are discussed remains about the same. You talk about things on a national level, sometimes on a state level, occasionally an individual is introduced. Uh, and the only place that there was a deviation were there were a couple stories about individual slaves escaping or uh, uh, how they escaped or in, in the attempted recaptures of them in the 1850s. And as I came across those, it struck me that this is like the 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 chart line has suddenly dipped here into a much more detailed individual story. There's nothing comparable during a particular battle or during a particular election. Uh, and now, as you tell me uh, of your your article, I, I can it makes perfect sense that that, uh, that that would be what you would have been uh, working on or thinking about. And it, it's not a negative; it's just simply something that uh, that stands out a little bit. But yeah, well, overall, it's a, a a very entertaining book, and I apologize for talking us to the end here, but I hear uh, and see on the clock that we are at the end of our time. Uh, so I, I hope we do get a chance to see each other at a conference and talk more about this. Uh, if you're not an undergraduate, uh, listeners, uh, you'd still benefit from uh, taking a look at A House Divided, the Civil War in 19th Century America. Uh, and uh, if you are, uh, if you're in one of my classes, you'll be reading this whether you want to or not. Uh, Anyway, John, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World